may have noticed that this great tsunami wave of the Holy Spirit has crossed the Pacific Ocean and now has landed in Korea. And today we're going to look at how that continued on into Manchuria. This is Korea and then Western direction is Manchuria. So we're, we're once again, we're tracing this west blowing wind. Before we get into how this happened, I want to just point out something here that you may have noticed. That um, so many of us almost define uh, Pentecost by the gift of tongues. And I believe the reason for that is Azusa Street. The Azusa Street Revival did add in the gift of tongues and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in ministry. God was adding this in, I believe, and intends all these things for his whole church. He's equipping the church for the end times. But... Uh, if we stress the gift of tongues to the exclusion of everything else, insisting that tongues is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, then it's because we've taken one of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit and uh, it's as though we don't, we're not even aware of all of the others. And so, what I'm believing for is that by looking at the whole track record of God and all of the outpourings, hundreds of them, outpourings <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit, we can get a much broader and deeper understanding of the total picture. And what we see in looking at the whole track record of the Holy Spirit is that conviction of sin is a far deeper, more central piece of Pentecost than the gift of tongues. As important as tongues is in my own life and as important as I believe the spiritual gifts are for today. What we see in Korea and what we're going to see in China is the gift of conviction, conviction of sin. And um, it goes right back to Acts 2.37. This is the main thing that we see in Pentecost in the Bible in the in Acts two, they were all cut to the heart and they cried out, "What must we do to be saved?" This was not because Peter had been preaching about eternal salvation; he had been preaching about their sin, and the the Lord used his preaching to convict them of their sin, so that they wanted to know what to do about that. And he said, "Repent, therefore." So repentance and conviction of sin leading to repentance, <clears throat> is the central feature of the original Pentecost. Jonathan Edwards called this a legal awakening. It was part of our great awakening and the second great awakening also, conviction of sin, the awareness of the holiness of God. And perhaps that's why we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, because he brings this awakening to holiness and the awareness of the two-edged sword, like a plumb line of God's righteousness. 
It's as though God were a chiropractor and our backbone has gotten out of line and we need him to give us a good adjustment. And that's what they were experiencing in the church in Korea and again in the church in China. And the main person who began to look into this and uh, articulate it in his time in China was Jonathan Goforth. Jonathan and Rosalind were missionaries to China at the end of the previous century, and then they experienced a season of persecution from the Boxer Rebellion. The Boxer Rebellion was a secret society in China that was aimed at forcing out all foreigners, and especially Western missionaries. And so many missionaries lost their lives during the Boxer Rebellion. Many missionaries left, but Jonathan and Rosalind decided to stay during that period of time as they were staying in China during uh, hardship and persecution. God began to give Jonathan Goforth a, 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 an intense longing for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was brought by reading the previous track record of other outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And so he, he for example, looked into the 100-year uh, uh, prayer watch uh, of the Moravians at Hernhut in uh, Saxony and how that led into uh, the Great Awakening. Uh, he looked into the, the uh, great evangelistic outreach of Charles Finney. He, he obtained a copy of the autobiography of Charles Finney, and the missionaries in China read that to each other and began to gain a, a heart and a desire for something like that to happen among them. <clears throat> and finally, so much did it become an obsession with me that my wife began to fear that my mind would not stand it. Of great inspiration to me were the reports of the Welsh revival of 1904 and 5. Plainly, revival was not a thing of the past. Slowly the realization began to dawn on me that I had tapped a mine of infinite possibility. You see, it's that mine of infinite possibility that others have discovered that I believe is still there waiting to be discovered in our generation. And maybe that's why I've presented this series of teachings in the hope that you and I will discover that same infinite possibility in the power of God, obtained through prayer. Prayer was the access that we have to the throne of grace was obtained by the death of Jesus on the cross. And as we go into prayer and utilize that access and call on God to pour out his spirit in our generation, we are utilizing the access obtained by the death of Jesus. And I believe it's to bring his kingdom and his righteousness. It's not just so that we will go to heaven after we die. After we die. It's so that we can experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit during the age of the Spirit. <clears throat> so Jonathan Goforth, as he was 
reading of the track record of the power of God, he was invited to go to Korea by another missionary who told him things had broken out there. And so he said, yes, let's go. And, and he and his wife went to Pyongyang and they uh, met with the, with the missionaries there and interviewed them and looked at what was happening and could hardly believe it. And this is what he reports. As I remember, those missionaries at Pyongyang were just ordinary, everyday people. I didn't notice any outstanding figure among them. They seemed to live and work and act like other missionaries. It was in prayer that they were different. One evening, Dr. Mackay and myself were invited to attend the missionary prayer meeting. Never have I been so conscious of the divine presence as I was that evening. Those missionaries seemed to carry us right up to the very throne of God. One had the feeling that they were indeed communing with God face to face. On the way back to our host's residence, Dr. Mackay was silent for some time. I could see that he was greatly agitated, and finally with deep emotion he exclaimed, What amazing prayer! Then he interviewed those missionaries to find out <clears throat> what their perspective was about this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Mr. Swallen said, It paid well to have spent the several months in prayer, for when God the Holy Spirit came, he accomplished more in half a day than all of us missionaries could have accomplished in half a year. In less than two months, more than 2,000 were converted. It is always so as soon as God gets first place. But as a rule, the church which professes to be Christ's will not cease her busy round of activities and give God a chance by waiting on him in prayer. By the middle of 1907, there were 30,000 converts connected with the Pyongyang Center. And then when they went out to other places, the same thing would break out in those other places all over Korea. <clears throat> Well, Jonathan Goforth began to hope that maybe the same thing could happen to him. He, he was experiencing this power of the Holy Spirit. He knew that it was uh, brought on through prayer and prayer alone, a certain kind of prayer. And so he went back to Manchuria, and this is what he says. When I started on the long journey to Manchuria in February 1908, <clears throat> I went with the conviction in my heart that I had a message from God to deliver to his people, but I had no method. I did not know how to conduct a revival. I could deliver an address and let the people pray, and that was all. So he began to speak this message about prayer leading to spiritual awakening. And as he did, people began to awaken to it. In two cities in particular, in Luoyang and in Mukden, and the the word about what was happening to the people as Jonathan Goforth went to those places began to spread out to other places, and then he went to a hard place uh, called Kuangning. Shortly after my arrival in Kuangning, one of the missionaries said to me. Reports have come to us of the meetings at Mukden and Liaoyang. I thought I had better tell you right at the beginning. 
You need not expect similar results here. We are hard-headed Presbyterians from the north of Ireland at this place, and our people take after us. So he went ahead and preached that word and prayed. And in two days, by the third day, he noticed a softening in the congregation of the people at Quang Ning. After one meeting, a visiting missionary was heard to remark, I've never heard such praying as that before. Why, it just seemed as if it had suddenly dawned on these people that a way of access had been opened to the throne of grace, and they were eager to get in all their confessions and petitions before the door was closed. After the evening meeting, on the third day, a few of us missionaries were conversing together. I can't understand how it is, said one. Our Chinese leaders are so silent these days. So far, all the praying has been done by the ordinary church members. In the prayer meetings that were held before Mr. Goforth came, the leaders didn't hold back at all. Why then should they be so silent now? I said, I think you can count on it that there is a hindrance among your leaders. It is sin that makes them dumb. Immediately, one of the lady missionaries took me up. Oh, come now, Mr. Goforth, she said. You surely don't expect us to believe that there are such sinners among our leaders as there were at Mokden and Liaoyang. Why, we would be ashamed of ourselves if there were. On the fourth day, we began the afternoon meeting at about four o'clock. Following my address, the same deep intensity in prayer became evident. After prayer had continued for about half an hour, a strange thing happened. More than half the congregation went down on their knees. Strange, I say, because it was a Presbyterian church, and the people had always been accustomed to stand while praying. Feeling, however, that it was the direction of the Spirit, I intimated that they might all go down on their knees if they wished. And they did. Then an elder stood up and said to another elder, who was seated on the platform, In the session meetings, it was always my bad temper that was the cause of trouble. Please forgive me. The elder who was addressed cried back, Don't say any more. I'm just as much at fault as you are. It's you who should forgive me. A few minutes of silence followed. Then a man rose from his knees and in a clear voice, though he was bordering on tears, began to pray. For several days I had been taking note of the man, although I didn't know who he was. He had a strong, intelligent face, upon which anxiety was plainly written. Oh God, he cried, you know what my position is, a preacher. When I came to these meetings, I determined that come what would, I would keep my sins to myself. It would bring disgrace not only on myself, but on my family and my church. I can't keep it hidden any longer. I have committed adultery. But that is not all. In one of the outstations, a deacon committed a horrible sin which hindered your cause. My plain duty was to report the affair to the missionary, but the deacon bought me a fur garment, and I accepted it, and it sealed my lips. I can't wear it any longer. And with that, he tore off the garment, flung it from him as if it had been the plague. Then he continued to pray with glowing intensity until the whole audience was swept as by fire. Even the smallest children began to cry out for mercy, 
and the meeting did not break up until 10 o'clock that night, having lasted six full hours. And then he goes on a little bit later to show what this accomplished in China. It was quite a common thing to overhear people in the city telling each other that a new Jesus had come. Their reason for saying this was that for years many of the professing Christians had been cheating their neighbors and quarreling with them. Some indeed had gone so far as to revile their parents and beat their wives. It seemed that the other Jesus was too old or had lost his power to keep them in order. But the new Jesus, it appeared, was doing wonderful things. He was making all those old backsliders get up before the whole church and confess their sins and afterwards go right to their heathen neighbors and pay back anything they owed, beg the forgiveness of all whom they had wronged. But what was the greatest surprise of all was that they should even go as far as to abase themselves before their wives, asking their pardon for the way in which they had mistreated them. In this way, a revival served to carry conviction to the great mass of people outside the church that the living God had come among his people. I believe we need that in America today. We need tongues, we need healing, we need the gifts of the Spirit, we need deliverance, we need all of those things. But it seems to me, and I don't quite understand why, that we lack the conviction of sin in recent years as we talk about revival and as we talk about spiritual awakening today. It seems to me that repentance from conviction of sin and this powerful two-edged sword cutting to the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, this plumb line, this chiropractic adjustment, this is what we need today in America. And won't you join me in praying for this today?